0: The next condition in the dependent arising, Ananda, if one is asked, is craving due to specific condition, one should say it is, if one is asked through what condition is there craving, one should say, with feeling as condition there is craving. Now, yesterday we had that whole... Um, explanation on craving and we might have been able to see from it that it is at the bottom of all the ills that arise in the world amongst people but if you ever would like to watch animals you will find the same difficulties and here in this particular situation you could watch birds And instead of thinking, aren't they cute, aren't they pretty, don't they have a nice song, what are they doing, probably building a nest, instead of that, watch them being afraid, constantly moving to see if something is happening to them, where there's anything bigger than them that is uh, dangerous in constant fear and therefore in constant movement and if you can see that and relate that to humanity and then to yourself you will have hit it right on the nose constant movement because of constant fear the movement does not have to be physical of course it often is it's very often of course just in the mind with the birds We can see it physically. It's very obvious. And uh, it's very helpful also to see that those beings which are the nearest to us, namely the animals and those that we can see, and they're the only other beings that most people can see, there are a few people who can see something else, but most people, that's the only thing they can see, are having the same difficulties we have. Dukkha. And the craving arises out, the fear arises out of the craving that there should be constant being and that there should be also pleasure. Now if we think and know that craving is the underlying factor giving us the difficulties which we experience, then we will see how important feeling is. Maybe you can also see from this already that craving is already a mental action making karma. Negative karma, of course. But feeling is not. It doesn't make any karma, it just is. And therefore, you can also see from this, maybe, that we are here at the point of departure. If we have feeling without craving, we're not making karma. If we have feeling without craving, we also do not return into the same round again of liking and disliking. In other words, if for a moment, we do not have any reaction to feeling at that moment, there's peacefulness. You may be able to actually experience that. A feeling is just feeling and not a beginning of a reaction. We don't have anything happening to us. Most of the time in our lives, I might say even all the time in our lives, things happen much too quickly in order to even either notice it or let the craving go. In the condition which is here, you may be able to become aware of it, and then, having become aware, having a chance at letting feeling just be feeling. Now, with feeling, the interesting part of it is that craving can be for many different sense objects for many different sense pleasures, at least six different ones, because there are six senses, including the mind. But the feeling which is aroused is always the same. It doesn't matter what kind of a sense object we're craving, nor does it matter through what sense though it has come, it's always the same feeling, the feeling of wanting or of rejecting. So the, that is an interesting aspect to notice in oneself. Because again it helps us in two ways. It helps us to see ourselves more impersonally. That's one way. Now to see ourselves more impersonally is the whole purpose of this discourse. And because of that, It's a difficult discourse, even though it sounds quite simple. And because of that, the Buddha said to Ananda, when he said that this discourse was totally clear to him, that he shouldn't say so. Because it is a discourse which has only one direction, and that is talking about all the aspects which refer to a human being on a level of impersonality. Those things are just conditions. There's nobody there that's making them happen, and there's nobody there that's experiencing them. Interesting, isn't it? So, when we see, in the first place, that this is impersonal, and that all our sense objects are, if we, if we like them, arouse exactly the same kind of feeling, the one of wanting, that pleasant, pleasant feeling. Then we can see that this differentiation which we are constantly making is actually totally unnecessary. It all boils down to that which we like and that which we don't like. And when we can see that, we may be able to be (coughs) more detached, because attachment was one of the nine conditions which bring about all the difficulties. So we can see that it doesn't matter whether it's food that arouses a craving because there is a pleasant feeling, or whether it is a person that the feeling of wanting remains exactly the same, that it's only the mind that's making a storyline, then we can see that the craving is not very beneficial for us. And we can look at our feelings impersonally. And that's what the whole purpose of this is, to look at feelings impersonally, because between feeling and craving is the gateway for liberation. If we can look at feeling impersonally. Now you'll have to try and do that on your own. I can only make the suggestion. I can't look at your feelings impersonally for you. You'll have to do that yourself. And of course in order to do that, one has to be aware of one's feelings. And this is a thing that is often bandied about in Western psychology, getting in touch with one's feelings. Well, if one is craving, wanting anything, one has already got in touch with one's feelings. It's not possible that craving arises if there isn't a feeling before that. So, in order to get us to know ourselves a little better, all we have to do is pay attention to that. I don't like, I do like. So, what's the cause of that? Now, with feeling... We also need to know the other side of it. Feeling brings about the craving. But how do we get feeling? Because obviously there's a very important point in our whole makeup. And we often talk about that point as getting to know oneself better because we're only concerned with our mind. Well, this is also not quite the way it is described in Western psychology. Feeling comes about through contact. Contact of the senses. Now we have to look at these senses, which I have already mentioned them. But we can say that we have six senses. And we have to take that for granted that in Buddhist terminology the mind is called the sixth sense. And they're called the sense faculties we have those and they are called the internal basis they're internal to us we have those faculties we can see hear taste touch smell and think so we know all that but we really don't pay a lot of attention to it and then we have the sense objects and that's the external basis They're outside of us and then they meet which I explained yesterday already And as they meet, there's contact. Now that contact is the only thing that can ever arouse feeling. Now because feeling is our doorway, if we don't go any further than feeling, it's a very important thing to know. Contact conditions feeling. So this is only possible through either the five senses or the mind. And the mind has ideas, and that also brings feeling, which is the uh, reason why I say, if you do loving-kindness meditation and you can't feel a thing, thing, never mind, think it. Eventually, the feeling comes. Thinking it long enough, whatever it is. If we think something wholesome like that long enough, the feeling for it arises. If we think the opposite long enough, we feel that too. And because we've been thinking long enough, I am. Therefore, we all feel it. Getting up in the morning, who's getting up? Me, of course. So we've been thinking it for lifetimes. So obviously, this is what we feel. And then, the simplicity of it all is actually astounding. If we have a real entry into understanding that there isn't anybody there and we actually know that eventually we'll be able to experience it and feel it in all that simplicity that's enlightenment the thing is so simple that it appears as if anybody should really be able to understand it and then do it. But it isn't. It's just that our whole thinking process answers to our sense contacts. And this is the interesting part, which is the one I have already described several times, but I want to go into more detail here because the Buddha also goes into more detail here at this point of this discourse. I've already told you that we have four aspects of the mind, the sense consciousness, the feeling, the perception, and then the mental formation or volition, that which we then intentionally think. Our sense contacts, hearing, seeing, tasting, touching, smelling, all have their own Objects and their own ability we can't see with the ears and we can't hear with the eyes it's obvious but they all converge in the mind they have no way of explanation except through the mind so they are all separate all these sense contacts that we make and they all uh, only have one function the ear can only hear The taste buds can only taste, but the whole thing converges in the mind. And as we have that converging in the mind, and this is happening constantly, this isn't just on Sundays or when I talk about it. This happens from morning to night, day after day, all the time. When that converges in the mind, then the mind reacts. And this is how this whole sequence arises because we are reacting. And whether we know it or not, and most people don't, we are reacting. Most people never pay attention to that. They take it for granted that they are reacting. They don't even know the word is in there, the action of reacting. Because it's so fast and it's so habitual, And that's why I've told you that when you go outside, for instance, to become aware of the sense contact, and with that, of the other three, which is the sense consciousness arising, the other three things which follow immediately. And when you can become aware of that, in the beginning it's not possible. One has to go back again and start all over again seeing the same thing again, and then trying to become aware of feeling, perception, and mental formation. It's only when we finally become aware of those steps that we realize what's going on. What is going on is a totally impersonal process, which is due to the fact that we have those senses, including the mind, and that they all have that kind of interconnection. And if we see that that's going on, we may get a little more of an inkling of this being a totally impersonal thing, that there's nobody there doing it. Because sometimes we would much rather not do it. And it's just a process which happens. Now, these, our senses and the sense objects, They constitute the meeting ground between the mind and the world. Now, everything that we experience is, of course, a meeting ground of mind and world. But here we can see it best. We see something that's out there in the world, and the mind explains it. And the mind does not always explain it in the same way maybe one is feeling very well in every aspect and one looks at snow-covered mountains and the eye sees those snow-covered mountains and there's a nice feeling and the mind says pretty and then the reaction is how nice to be surrounded by snow-covered mountains But at another time, one might be standing in the same spot and feeling very cold. And one sees the same snow-covered mountains. And the mind says, Oh, snow-covered mountains. That's a perception. And then the reaction is, I wish I was in Hawaii. (laughs) And it's the same snow-covered mountains. They haven't changed the slightest bit. But what has changed is a physical sensation. In the first instance, we felt well, fine, nothing wrong. And in the second instance, we were cold, which is the physical sensation. So the same thing creates a different perception and then a different reaction. So this is a very interesting aspect and makes it even more impersonal. Because we can see that there's nobody in charge of this. Who is in charge? Who's doing all this for us? Who is running the show? I'm sure everybody would have thought once, at least in their lifetimes, if I had to run this, I could do it better. If one hasn't done thought like that, one hasn't paid enough attention. So what we have here is a meeting ground, which we can see with everything we do because it goes both ways. But with the senses that go outward and meet the world, we have a very interesting experience of that. And then another thing which we don't know, but which makes it so difficult to become aware of the feeling that arises when the sense consciousness and contact is there is the fact that they arise simultaneously. It's a simultaneous arising. The moment the contact is made and the consciousness of the sense, seeing, hearing, whatever, is there, feeling is there. And because of that simultaneous arising, we cannot separate them. And that's why people so often say, well, I know about the perception, the labeling. I do know about my own reaction, but I didn't know the feeling. Because we can't separate. We don't separate. We stick to the contact, the uh, whatever we see, because it's uh, more predominant of what we hear. So we have to be even more mindful to know the feeling that comes with it. We can recognize the feeling after we have already had perception and volition or mental formation but that's too late because the feeling makes that craving arise so it is very important to become mindful enough especially of course in a meditation course to at least know what happens that the feeling arises now in the sitting position it is an ideal situation to become aware of that even logically because we don't get the unpleasant feeling unless we've had the contact of touch we can't get this unpleasant feeling of sitting without having had first the sense consciousness of touch so we get the touch and it doesn't even arise as unpleasant right away It arises as as neutral in the beginning, because there are only three kinds of feelings, pleasant, neutral, and unpleasant. So in the beginning, when one sits down, one may be able to sit for 20 minutes, one hour, whatever, without any unpleasantness. So it's neutral. But then comes the unpleasantness. And then it's very simple to see, touch, unpleasant feeling. So the simultaneous arising does not always have to be the same feeling. It can be neutral also, and often is. So then, with that, and that I have already mentioned that, but i like to mention it again in this context, because it is a very important way of getting in touch with this particular aspect of ourselves. Then, of course, comes the word pain, and then comes the reaction. Either I'm going to sit and grin and bear it, or... I'm going to learn Dukkha from it or I'm going to stick through this if it's the last thing I do or I can't stand it, I'm going to get up or whatever it may be. Any any of the many different pos- possibilities which the mind makes up. And it doesn't always make up the same. It may be the, exactly the same feeling. And three days in a row or three sittings in a row, it makes up three totally different storylines. Because it gives itself the opportunity to have more of diversion. Different stories. It's the same unpleasant feeling. Nothing has changed. So with that, we may be able to see that this simultaneous arising of the feeling is, Here, easily done, also because we're sitting very quietly. But outside, we can become aware of seeing, hearing, and tasting or smelling. These two, um, the smelling is more difficult, but the tasting in the eating, for instance, that cannot be. That can be quite easy. That there's a with that contact, there's a pleasant feeling or. If one bites into something, as I'm sure everybody has done it sometime, which one thinks it's a strawberry and it turns out to be a chili. I mean, the feeling is just disastrous. Because the uh, the, uh, taste, the touch of the taste contact was already contaminated with the perception. So there was already a perceiving of the eye contact. And this eye contact was already with with a mind explanation, and then when the actual taste contact happened, the whole thing is a total disaster. It doesn't have to be a strawberry and chili, but it just occurred to me because they're both red. Uh, but it does happen, uh, n- not infrequently, that one thinks one is having something entirely different than what one is getting. And then it is not difficult to realize that with the moment of contact, the feeling arose, And then, because the feeling is very strong, very unpleasant, very strong, one can separate the two. One can separate that taste contact, the contact of this tasting with the arisen feeling. And that's a very helpful situation. It doesn't always happen. Of course, one can't quite make it happen. But it is important to realize that because it hinges our whole... opportunity of stepping out of samsara hinges on recognizing feeling and if we don't recognize it then of course there isn't very much we can do it about it we can do about it because we will again and again fall into the same pattern of naming perception and reaction we have one thing that the Buddha emphasized over and over again to calm the senses so that they're not constantly at work. And the one thing that we're calming here is the mind sense, not think all the time. Calming of the senses is mentioned by the Buddha in practically every discourse where he delineates the step-by-step progression from the ordinary individual to an enlightened one. Without that, there is no hope of ever stepping out of the round of samsara, of ever getting rid of dukkha to the extent where it doesn't arise again. Now here we are trying to calm the mind sense and maybe that will give you also an explanation of how important it is to have the calm and tranquility meditation. Because otherwise the mind keeps working and working and working. And whether it's working on impermanence or whether it's working on um, recognition or whether it's working on the contact of the mind on the sensations, it's working. There's always something happening. So to calm the senses, in the sense here, when I'm talking about the mind, of course makes it possible eventually also that even in daily life, We don't think all the time. Now, that doesn't mean that we are asleep or that we are in any way unconscious. It just means that we can stay with the momentary experience, which may be nothing other than breathing or feeling the saliva in one's mouth or sitting, but nothing else. Just the experience of that. And the mind not having all sorts of ideas, which again are sense contacts, which then need to be um, digested. So this calming of the mind sense, which takes place in meditation, is of course at the same time connected with calming the other senses. Because while we're meditating, we're not looking at anything with our physical eye, We are hopefully not listening to anything. We are not tasting anything. We're not smelling anything. The only touch sensation we have is our sitting position. And if we do become concentrated, that too is of of no concern at all, has no bearing on our whole aspect. Again, how important it is to be able to have the calming of the senses, at least during meditation, and in a situation such as this, where there's a lot of meditation, we are really calming these sense doors down and are not allowing them to have that much worldly contact. And when we don't have that contact, we don't have the mind explaining all these sense contacts. Peace arises. And then we will finally know that peace is not the absence of war. There's only one way to have peace, and that's within. And that comes from calming the senses. So while this whole discourse is so far and practically to the end only concerned with insight, insight into the impersonality of all existence, the ways and means to actualize that goes, goes through the calm and tranquility meditation, which also, of course, enable the mind to see clearly, which I've already mentioned many times. But this is another aspect of the jhanas, the calming of the senses. Now, that, of course, isn't enough, because we can't walk around in the jhanas. And we can't do our business in the jhanas. So, calming of the senses is an injunction by the Buddha for everyday life. Not to search for sense contact. And that again leads us back to the jhanas. Because if we already are able to have joy and peace in the meditation, our search for the sense contact, will be far diminished because we don't need them that much anymore. We are not without that search, but that's not as important. It doesn't have a priority anymore. So sense calming of the senses means not searching for sense contacts and it also means averting the senses. We don't have to look at every shop window. Every one is enough and we don't have to read every billboard or listen to every commercial on the television. In fact we don't have to have television which would be a great help in calming the senses. So anything that hits the senses and if we can see that it's totally unnecessary for our survival and it's detrimental to our well-being can be left alone. The more of the inner and peace arises, the less we have to look for it outside of us. Calming the senses is one of the steps in the progression of worldliness towards Nibbana, which is never left out in any of the discourses by the Buddha, which delineate that whole progression. It's one of the steps which comes either before or after mindfulness. And is absolutely essential. The more we have our sensually orientated, the less we can actually know ourselves, because that's going out. It's a two-way street. We have the mind going out and the world coming in. So with the mind going out, we have ideas. The idea says, I'd like to eat something nice and the same moment we go and get it if it happens to be the possibility go and raid the icebox or something like that so then having with the mind gone out then it comes in in that case with the taste contact or the mind says I'm bored, I want to go to the movies so it goes to the world and it goes to the movies and we have the visual impact coming in. So we have this two-way street. Now, it doesn't always generate in the mind. We don't always say, well, I want to do this. Sometimes it starts out there because we're just standing there and there's a visual impact or um, we hear something. We haven't said, I want to hear a truck. We just hear the truck. So that comes into us and then the mind explains the whole thing. Actually, there's only sound. But I've already told you that. But it's very important to practice it. It's very interesting to practice it. Because what could be more interesting in this whole universe than myself? Let's face it, that's the one we're really interested in. So if we practice finding out what this myself consists of, not only do we have an interesting uh, practice, but we gain insight we gain the reality of inside, if we do it the right way, the way it's being said to do. So when we hear the sound which comes from the world into us, then we have that explanation in the mind. It's all the sense contacts converge in the mind. And as the sound then has already been accepted by the mind, then it gives it a name, says truck, or says ugly, depending on what kind of feeling, arose together with the sound. If the feeling was neutral, the mind might say, truck. If the feeling was unpleasant, the mind might say, awful. And then the reaction is, there are far too many trucks around here, or how can any meditator, anybody meditate in the surroundings, or whatever one can think of. And then another truck comes, and then the mind thinks up something new. So we have this two-way street happening. But this is not theoretical. And I repeat this, I think, every evening. because I want to warn you against thinking or reacting that this is just a story. This is us, and you need to experience it. And it's possible to experience that. All you have to do is remember... And do it. Go out there and become aware. You can do it in here, too. Now, the outward going, as I've already said, has this labeling. And as we label, then the next step is that we like to order the whole thing. We like to have order in the universe. We don't like to live in chaos. People who live in chaos are usually... Um, on the verge of already in a state of um, mentality which is not healthy as long as we are mentally healthy which what we consider healthy Buddha said we are all sick but what we consider healthy we have to have order because we cannot cope with chaos in the universe so what we do then with this labeling with this perception and labeling and naming we conceptualize. We make a concept out of it. And as we make a concept out of it, we immediately evaluate it. That's our judgmental mind. And it is totally natural. We have an evaluation of it. We evaluate whether it's worthwhile for us or whether it's worthless, whether it's good or whether it's bad, whether it's something that we want or don't want. And with all that going on, We then sort of put it in category, and from that all our views arise, because we've got categories. We've got little uh, drawers where we put in, on one side, those nice people that always agree with us and say that we are really nice, and then on the other side we've got little drawers, those people we don't like, they disagree, and they have totally different views, and they don't understand anything that we say, and all the rest of it. So there we've got these little these two divisions, because this is less chaotic. It's more orderly. We can cope with that. And then, of course, we have another set of drawers for all the things that are good and all the things that are bad, and then we have one set for all the things that are mine and all the things that are not mine. And then, of course, we have another set of drawers where, which are l- labelled the things I want to be mine. <laughs> and those that then we might have another set of drawers which is labelled the things I don't want to be mine. So we've got it all very nicely in order, but doesn't help us at all because if we get rid of one set of drawers, we immediately put another there. It's always full, just like the drawers in our houses. It's exactly the same with the drawers in our mind. They're full of stuff, and they're not necessary. But it's a natural phenomenon. It's totally natural, it's a human mind that does that. So as soon as we label, which is the next thing that happens after the sense contact because the feeling we've already not noticed, if we were to notice a feeling and become fully aware of it, we wouldn't have to label because we'd be busy with the feeling. But now we haven't noticed that, so we we start labeling and then making order out of this whole mess that's going on with us because it comes in through the sense doors and it's got to be ordered somehow. And then all this starts. We have a concept about it. We evaluate it, judging, discriminating naturally. This judgmental mind is a discrimination between this and that. And then putting it in its proper place. And having put it in its proper place, we've got absolutely definite viewpoints and opinions. And then if somebody should ever come to any of those drawers and say, this is the wrong drawer, you put that in, then we have a violent argument. Because it's according to our views and opinions that that is the right place to put it in. And this is happening in everybody's mind. And we can become aware of it. When we can become aware of it in meditation. When the mind becomes very calm, it's a totally different kind of mind. When the mind that is can actually practice the different steps of the jhanas, particularly, of course, the more the higher ones, not just the first two, are still very conceptual. We know exactly what's going on, but when we get further into from four onward, it's very difficult to put that in the proper drawers. Although I always give names so that there isn't any chaos in the mind, that there aren't any drawers for it, because it doesn't exist in the world. And because of that, it shows us that it's not necessary. It's totally unnecessary. There's a totally different possibility for the mind. We don't have to stick to those um, possibilities that come through the senses. It's very interesting, because it helps us again to see that all the things that we're doing with the mind are only limiting us. They're putting us always back on the level of worldliness, which is extremely limited. I'm sure you have seen on some um, television show or some picture how small this planet of ours is. Has it ever occurred to us that it's like a speck of dust in the universe? And if that's already a speck of dust in the universe, how big are we, each one of us? And the limitation that we put on ourselves with this kind of conceptual thinking makes it appear as if we're really something and that this is something of importance and it prevents us from seeing and experiencing the wholeness of existence, the totality of it, because we've got it all ordered nicely within this house of our mind in its all little cubby holes and since we're concerned with them we can't get out it's just like somebody who's always sitting in the house making uh, cleaning it up and making bring it in order which many people do so there is a, a very great advantage that we can experience when we see that the mind can have totally different um experiences without sense contact. And that only happens, of course, in the um, meditative absorptions. So that's a totally different mental state. It's always uh, explained uh, as a separate separate one. Now, I've already said that if we, for instance, hear something at one time or two of people hear the same thing, it never comes to the same explanation in the mind. And that is due to the fact that the feeling which arises is not the same in two people or at two different times. It may also not be, the labeling may not be the same. And it may also not be the same reaction to it. So whatever is happening with the senses, it's not always a given it is depending entirely in the first instance on the feeling which arises together with the sense content and I explained that to you already with one time feeling cold and seeing the snow-covered mountains and another time feeling quite comfortable and seeing the same snow-covered mountains the whole sequence then changes and that's why two people three four ten twenty a million, five billion, will never see eye to eye on anything, on anything at all. Because the feeling which arises together with the sense contact cannot be the same at the same time with two people. There's always a slight difference. And if we can understand that and actually have it happen to us, as, for instance, with the snow-covered mountains, we will never again be surprised that there's so little harmony in the world amongst people. Because people think that what they are describing in their own mind is the only and absolute possibility. They completely negate or forget or never think of the possibility that... It isn't the same for the next one. It's totally different. Sometimes the difference is very small. Then there may be agreement, tentative agreement. But if the difference is very large, there's no hope of agreeing. So we have argumentation, we have disharmony, we have enmity and dislike amongst people for the simple reason that their feelings are not the same which arise at the same time as sense contact. Now if we could get that through our heads and really stick it into the mind and keep it there then it would help us to accept other people's viewpoints. And then it will also help us to make our own viewpoints less stringent. We don't have to believe them all. They only arise because we have categorized and we have categorized because we have felt. Two people see the same person and because of a difference in feeling, for one person, it's a friend and for another person, it's an enemy two people see the same fruit and because of a difference in perception for one person it looks ripe and for the other one looks unripe and so on there's uh, in any in any possibility and always that understanding that it's just my reaction, that's all now if we could remember that our relationship with other people would greatly improve not just by tolerating them not just by trying to accept them but through that insight that there's nobody there it's just a feeling which creates the perception which creates a volition that's all but that's a difficult thing to do in the world but we can try it here Now there are two things which are important in this whole sequence and I have already briefly referred to them but the wording is important because the teaching of the Buddha and meditation is science of the mind and science has its own terminology and if we know that terminology which is concerned with the Buddha's teaching it's much easier to understand each other Now, other teachings have other terminology, and to bring the two together and make them fit is usually impossible, unless one has happened to experience both and then realizes that one is experiencing the same. So the terminology is important. So the Buddha talks about, and we will read that also, it comes later, but it belongs in here. He talks about impingement and designation. And these are two terms he will be using in this sutta. And the impingement is obviously that which hits our senses. So that is our reception we're receiving. And that is based on our karma. And I have already mentioned that once very briefly. But it's also an important fact. Because If we have made very good karma and have practiced loving kindness and compassion and have practiced the meditative absorptions and the senses have an impingement, I mean anybody has it, it's more likely that the reception is one of ease and one of um, even beauty and a reception that is um, very um, favorable. The more good karma one makes, the better the sense contacts are. One sees and hears and tastes and touches and smells and thinks nice things. As simple as that. Because one's made good karma. And that's what we get. But then, we've got to be careful then comes the designation. And the designation is our response. As soon as we respond to that which is the input, which creates immediately a feeling, as soon as we respond to that with either the craving to have or the craving to get rid of, we're making bad karma. And we're again on the downhill slope. But if we were, to just notice a feeling that has arisen and the sense contacts will be there as long as we are alive. As soon as we have noticed a feeling and do not respond with either not liking or wanting to have, we have made excellent karma. And if we can do it more than once and then one day make it habitual, because we have known already now through insight that it's not only unnecessary to respond, but it doesn't do us any good, then we are on our way to liberation. That's the doorway. So we have impingement, and we have designation going out. And anyone who is a meditator has made good karma, so it is obvious that we get a lot of nice sense contacts, which is fine on one side because it makes life better, but it's very, very unfortunate on the other side because as long as we're not enlightened, the mind is always apt to think, well, what's wrong with this world? It's all very nice. What am I supposed to do about it? I'm quite satisfied with it and do not see the dukkha in this constant coming in and going out this constant movement which is friction, and therefore Dukkha. Because it's all very nice, because of good karma, and so the mind is apt to be self-satisfied. A great danger to be self-satisfied. Naturally, if the Dukkha comes up again, then one becomes aware of it again, but again the mind may be again blaming somebody for it or something for it. So while good karma making is of course the um, uh, way to have more ease and more peace in the mind, it, one needs to be more and more alert and watch more and more for the feelings and the responses to them. Now here we have exactly that when we have that impingement and designation which is the sense contact and the response, which is on the dependent arising, the feeling and the craving. So this is actually the most important practice point in this whole um, sequence here, to become aware of the feeling which arises simultaneously with the sense contact. That's not an easy thing to do. It's very easy to say. One sentence. No problem. But it's not an easy thing to do. However, it can be done. It needs mindfulness. Bear attention. Being alert. Awake and aware. Not woozy and fuzzy in the mind. When the mind is woozy and fuzzy and doesn't want to know about things, it's another escape mechanism. There's nowhere to escape. The whole thing is a circle. We've got to step out. We don't have an escape hatch. We only have a gateway to liberation. So this is a very important point. that we That is the practice point of the greatest importance here. And some of the contacts that we make, it's easier. And with others, it's more difficult. Taste is fairly easy. And touch is fairly easy. So use that in daily practice. There is so much of that going on. Now, there are eight ways that contact and feeling come together. And I'll tell you these eight because they may also be helpful to practice exactly that what I'm saying, namely to become aware of the feeling which arises. The first thing is that it's simultaneous. They come, they come at the same time. In the discourse, the word is translated into English as co getting born together. But since that's not a very common word to use, I thought I'd better use simultaneous. So that's one thing to watch out for. That's the first thing I've already mentioned. That. The second thing is that they are mutually supporting each other. They're mutual. The contact supports the feeling. And the feeling, at the same time also, supports the contact because we are not aware of the feeling. So the contact is of most important thing. Because we are already engaged in that contact, we have that support system back and forth. Contact brings feeling. Feeling is the support system for this contact because the awareness remains on the contact. If we were to get onto the feeling we wouldn't have to support the contact any longer. So if we see something, or see a beautiful flower, and we become aware of the pleasant feeling that's arising, we can put our attention on that feeling. But if we don't, we keep on our attention on the uh, beautiful flower and start having the sequence of the naming and labeling and then the wanting to have it, or wanting to know its name, or whatever whatever it is that the mind then conjures up. So they are mutual as long as we haven't separated them. And then, contact has to be considered to be the underlying support, the decision, the decisive support for feeling. And therefore, it's not only that they are mutual, helping each other, But it's also the decisive support, the contact. That's why it's necessary to diminish contact if we can't stop at feeling. Now that's calming the senses. The more we diminish contact, the easier it is not to crave. Because once the feeling has arisen of pleasantness, it's much more difficult not to want so this um decisive support system of contact which is the another practice object through in meditation of course the less we think the better we meditate no contact with the world then we can see that the contact we get is a karma resultant which I've already explained the karma resultants are our contacts and at the same time, it's not only the um, karma resultant found in the contact, but it's also found in the feeling, because they are so mutually interacting. For instance, we may see, one person may see a, um, a beautiful sight, and the feeling is very pleasant, and the other person may see exactly the same sight, and doesn't have any pleasant feeling about it, It doesn't even recognize the beauty of it, might even feel quite um, against that because the feeling which arises is one of dislike because there's so much dislike in that person. So the karma resultant works on both ways, on the contact, we make nice contacts, but also, if we have made good karma, but also we get nice feelings from it because the mind is more geared towards that it has far more of um, equanimity in it it has far more of um, a positivity in it so a mind which is easily depressed will of course look at the same view and maybe find it depressing because that's what the mind is geared for, so this is also karma resulting both that they mutuality again And then, of course, contact is nutriment. All our sense contacts are like food. And, you know, some people like to raid the refrigerator often. Or like to nibble on things. And uh, it's the same with our senses. If we want to nibble on things, we want to have more food. They are food for the mind. Our sense contacts are food for the mind. So. The food for the mind has to be just as selectively used as the food for the body. Now, some people, of course, they eat anything, but most people nowadays already have understood that one should be a bit selective about one's food that goes in the body. Same thing with contact. Selective, not just anything. And that is really up to each person. Some of the things, like nature around us, they don't hurt us to look at that, but there are so many things that we look at or that we listen to, or that we um, uh, even touch, which are very detrimental, because the feelings that are aroused are, could be very strong feelings, and craving will inevitably follow. So we have to be more selective about the nutriment. Obviously, we have to have the nutriment. Just like the body needs a food to eat, so the senses need the food of contact. There's no doubt about it. But we must be selective. And if we are not, then we're only hurting ourselves. We never hurt anybody else. We're always hurting ourselves. So maybe we could make up our mind that we want to be our own best friend. And then we might be more selective. It's also, the selectivity also concerns the next point, the association. What we contact with our senses is what we associate with, and that means our thinking also. And our assia- association are, are, is our support system, the friends we make, the people we are together with. We're peopling the mind with all sorts of things. What is it that we associate with in the mind? So that's the contact through the mind, again through the senses. Selectivity in our association. And the most important point on this one, and the one previous to that, the nutriment and the association, is the mind base and our thinking process. Which is of course also very much impinged upon through what we see and hear. And the more selective we are, the easier it is. The easier it is to calm the senses, to have the feeling without the craving. The next one is called presence, which means actually the awareness that we have. Now the awareness of those two coming together and the awareness that helps us to distinguish what is actually happening within us, namely the feeling. Because if the feeling is not distinguished, then, as I said before, we'll stay with the contact. And as we stay with the sense contact, it will invariably lead to the next steps. It can't help it. We have to have it. We have to have the volition at the end, which is our reaction, which is our new karma making. So we need to know the present. Of what is happening. And the last one is called the non-disappearance. Now the non-disappearance does not mean that these things are not impermanent. They are of course. But what it means is that they arise and cease constantly. We're constantly confronted with this. And if we're not careful, if we don't do something about selectivity and calming the senses, then there is very little hope for us to find the gateway between feeling and craving because this is a constant. It In all our waking moments, we're making karma through this process of impingement and then designation. And through all our waking moments, we are confronted with sense contact. So it is not that they are not arising and ceasing. That is another point. But... They are continuing. And this is according to the verse which I read um, yesterday or the day before yesterday. The succession of the aggregates. And these are the aggregates, those four. The sense contact, the feeling, the perception and the volition. It's a succession of it. This is a non-disappearance. All of it requires a great deal of mindfulness and it requires time. And that's what we have here. We have time and we have quiet to get to know these aspects of ourselves which we which make up the personae. That's what we are made up of. And that's what the whole thing is all about. And our viewpoint is that we are something special. And the truth of it is that we are only reacting. That's all. So then there's one other thing that is mentioned here that the first thing I've already mentioned that the impingement, which is the reception that we receive coming in. And the other thing that we do then, not immediately, that we immediately react, but it's so fast we don't know it, we actually have a moment of investigation. The impingement of the senses is followed by a moment of investigation. So fast, we don't even know it. But here, we can slow down, and we can uh, become aware of that. And there are sometimes moments, even in daily life, where one can become aware of that through an accident, um, because the mind did not respond immediately. And we can actually see that, but we can do it also purposely. And as we have investigated, then we register. And that registration is the moment where we can also become aware of the feeling. Because the registration in the mind is that which actually explains already the feeling. So the feeling, to become aware of the feeling, as I said, is difficult because of the Simultaneous arising, but not impossible, if we slow ourselves down and stop reacting. And that is, of course, a practice which will show us that there's no need for us to crave because whatever we crave, it's not going to be fulfilling anyway. It's not going to give us what we're looking for the only thing that will be fulfilling is to have that understanding that we don't carry any particular person around with us. We are nothing but all those bits and pieces put together and then the mind reacting to it and saying, look at me, wonderful am I, or terrible am I, whichever state of mind I happen to be in. But none of this is true. It's always just that. It's always just coming in and going out. Now, I hope that this is understandable, and if not, this is the time to ask questions. <coughs> yes? Could you say a little more about the investigation? I didn't quite understand what, what is being investigated. Okay. We have what we are having arising in us simultaneously. Is the sense contact and the feeling. And because this is arising, the mind immediately, before it can make up its mind what all this is, has to investigate. So before the mind can actually get to this point of making order in the chaos, of having an evaluation and then putting it in the proper little drawer, it has to investigate. And it does that very, very quickly because it's used to it. Now I see now small children, if you watch small children who have no practice in doing this, they don't know what these things all are. They're quite bewildered by them, and they use them in the wrong way. They might uh, um, pick up uh, something that's obviously extremely dirty and should be thrown away and stick it in their mouth because they don't have that order in the chaos. They don't evaluate yet, and their investigation isn't working properly because it, it, they're working, it's working. They're trying to investigate, but they can't make order out of the chaos yet. They can't say, ah, this is a dirty thing, I can't have that. They're just investigating. And then the registration in our mind says, this is dirty, I don't want it. Right? But in the little kid's mind, the registration might say, I have to eat it. I you know, I mean, I, we can only assume what it says. But that's, so this investigation aspect is with us very quick because we're very practiced at it and we don't notice it. But before we can make order out of the chaos, we do that. We investigate and we register. And in that moment, instead of going any further, we can actually have an awareness of feeling. But if we go further, then we again come to these, um, to the evaluation. You see, the registration is not the evaluation that it's just... This is what it is. But then comes already the evaluation, and after the evaluation, it comes this putting away in little boxes. So if we can become aware of those things, it would help us greatly to know the feeling without the craving. So is, is the investigation part of the labeling process? Yes, right. that's so right. So it comes comes after the feeling, Yes. and is part of the, the whole the labeling I see is... is actually fairly large. That's right, it is. It happens, but it happens very quickly. But that does not, the labeling does not give us a craving yet. Right. It's the next step that gives us a craving. So if we can stop there, then we can already diminish the craving. Not every time, but sometimes. So it's, um, it's another helpful device. It's just all of these things are helpful devices. And if any one device that we find that we can actually do, that's the one to do. All right. Okay. Yes. The, the labeling then doesn't doesn't create the feeling, but it but it doesn't necessarily trap you either. Although it could, I suppose. It, it could. Right? It could trap you, but it doesn't necessarily, and it doesn't make karma yet. Mm-hmm. The labeling doesn't make karma yet. It makes. Uh, it just is one step further to make order out of chaos. And but the minute we evaluate. That's the making of the karma already. That's the mental volition. That's already the step too far, you know, when, when we evaluate it. So if the labeling is strictly this is a flower, that's fine. But if the labeling is already that there is something happening that is already creating this, um, I want the flower, that's already the reaction, that's already the craving. So the first thing is, but we do do this. We do register first, but we don't become aware of it most of the time. Is also fast. Yes. Oh, uh, well, I've been pretty cold off and on the last several days. I, sorry, I can't hear. I've been hear. cold off and on for the past several days, and so my desire to be warm uh, is creating bad karma. Is that <laughs> well, it, uh, it doesn't create very bad karma. <laughs> it's um, what it is. It's essential desire for comfort, right? And the essential desire for comfort, obviously, has with it craving. And so the craving, any kind of craving, creates dukkha. And it also creates the next step. Again, we're already in that progression of one after another. We've already passed the liberation door. However, one can say this also one can say that if I don't get warm, I might not be able to meditate properly. So it is a justifiable craving, one could say. Well the same by the same token there's a craving or a desire, let's put it this way, there's a desire to become enlightened for some people. And this desire is of course also creating dukkha, and it is also a desire which keeps us in the round of uh, birth and rebirth. But without that desire, we probably wouldn't do it. So, in actual fact, we're desiring to become, uh, to get rid of the desires. But if we can see that happening, that we are cold, you're cold and you want to get warm, right? And if you can see that not just as a justifiable action, but as essential desire for comfort, you've already seen into the, um, the uh, depend arising, and you've seen into yourself that you still want to be warm, that's another question. At least you've become aware of what's going on. So that can, can, can at least be helpful to see oneself more clearly. Please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. Think of all the good things that are happening in your life. The people, the experiences, the objects, the things that you have. Look at all of that and fill your heart with gratitude. Gratitude for the life that you have, which has within it so many wonderful and lovely things. The home you live in, the food you can eat the meditation you can practice the sights you can see and Importantly, gratitude for the fact that we are all human beings with the potential for enlightenment and have our senses and our limbs intact. Be grateful for that. Experience the gratitude. For his or her presence, the support that that presence is giving you in your own efforts, gratitude for being a companion on the spiritual path. Now think of everyone here and fill everyone with gratitude for their presence, the support that their presence gives, the connection you have with everyone as spiritual friends. Be grateful that this is happening and fill each person with your gratitude Think of your parents with gratitude, fill them and embrace them with the feeling of that gratefulness for all the help they have given you. And Think of the people who are nearest and dearest to you and Fill them with your gratitude That they're part of your life Accept you as they are as you are Help you care for you be grateful And let that feeling of gratitude reach out to those people Now think of your friends and have gratitude arise in your heart for their friendship and fill them with that gratitude and embrace them with it. Letting them feel your gratitude to them. Now think of other people you know Neighbors, people at work Acquaintances, relatives Anyone you can think of And fill your heart with gratitude For their presence in your life And then Shower them with that gratitude Embrace them with it Knowing that each one contributes to your life. Think of anyone whom you find difficult. Be grateful for that person's presence in your life as a teacher, teaching you to learn, to love that which does not appear lovable. And let this gratitude reach out to that person, filling him or her with it, embracing him or her with it, knowing that this is an important aspect in your life. Now think of all the people who make your own life possible, the farmers who grow food, the people who make the clothing, those who help us look after health those who keep the roads in order look after telephones our mail airplanes make cars build our houses supply electricity Think of all the things that you need for your life and then let your gratitude to all those who help you keep it going. Reach out to them. Recognizing the interconnectedness how none of us can do it alone. Let your gratitude reach out to nature around us. The trees help us to breathe. The earth helps to feed us. The clouds in the sky which bring the water. Sun, which warms us, the moon and the stars, which keep us company, and influence many of the movements on this planet. Let your gratitude reach out into the universe to all that lives and exists to feel your connectedness. Knowing how dependent we are on each other and on all that which surrounds us. Put your attention back on yourself. Feel yourself with gratitude that you can be part of universal existence. Part of a whole. Support it and protect it. Feel that gratitude, feel that joy of being embedded in the totality of all that surrounds us. And may beings everywhere have gratitude in their hearts.